Welcome to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. There are over 110 awesome interviews in this podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my past episodes on any podcast app to listen to them all. On today's show, my guest, Bill C., shares his story of a turbulent life ruled by alcoholism and nearly ended by suicide before he was saved by AA. Trouble started early for him when his father died of alcoholism when Bill was only 18 months old. Any lessons to be learned were snuffed out quickly by his stepfather, who spoke badly of Bill's biological dad. The journey to ruination accelerated throughout Bill's childhood and adolescence as he found relief from alcohol for his unhappiness, self-loathing, and fear. With his problems exacerbated by bad behavior and drinking, Bill found himself kicked out of the house and on his own at 16. He somehow managed to cobble together a life amidst a disease that addled every decision. By the time he was in his mid-twenties, he had endured multiple DUIs and three trips to prison. He'd even been sentenced to treatment in AA meetings, but he didn't believe he had a problem. Even working offshore on an oil rig, where no drinking was possible for weeks at a time, did little to abate the escalating disease every time he was back on shore. By the time he was in his mid-thirties, Bill's life was unraveling quickly as he became more and more isolated. His moment of clarity came on the verge of self-annihilation when he finally realized his powerlessness over alcoholism and the unmanageability of his life. Fortunately, the thought of AA divinely supplanted his use of the gun, and he finally came into the rooms of AA for good and all. Bill's eight-plus years in Alcoholics Anonymous have rebuilt his life in many ways. Diligent work in the steps allowed him to address lingering resentments from his earlier life, and make amends for his alcoholic behavior over so many years. With sincere humility, he acknowledges the service work of his program and the importance of regular meeting attendance. Bill's life tale since getting sober is one filled with God-given gifts and sober awareness of the significance of living the program one day at a time. I think you'll find much to be gained by listening to Bill's story and invite you to enjoy the next hour of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA brother, Bill C. My name is Bill. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Bill. Thanks for being on the AA Recovery Interviews podcast with me today. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Thanks, Howard. Thanks for asking me. Oh, yeah. That's a fun introduction. Well, yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, this is a special day for you. And I was just in a meeting where you picked up an eight-year chip. Eight years, your sobriety date would be February 16, 2015. Yes, sir. Congratulations on that. Thank you very much. When you first got sober, did you ever think you'd get to eight years? I didn't think that I would. I also didn't think that I wouldn't. It was not something that came into my mind. Uh-huh. It was very much the one day at a time, yeah. trying to mark off the calendar mm-hmm. type of thing with the X's. Yeah. I feel like I might have resonated or looked up more to people that had three years yeah. because eight years, I don't know, it, didn't, it wasn't that it seemed unachievable, it just seemed foreign. Yeah, I, I, I remember feeling the same way when I was new in sobriety. So you got sober in 2015. Was that the first time that you'd ever tried getting sober? No, it wasn't. I had tried several years before. Mm. I, I couldn't tell you how long ago it was. And I went to AA then. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure that when I was asked who I was, I didn't say my name's Bill and I'm an alcoholic. I might have said something like, my name's Steve and I might have a drinking problem. So I'm pretty certain I didn't use my real name, uh-huh. and I didn't say I was an alcoholic. I probably went to meetings for a week or two, maybe two weeks. It wasn't very much until, and this is a very big room, yeah, very big square of tables, and there was a guy across the room that I knew. Mm. These eyes locked, and I didn't know him that well. And when it was his turn to introduce himself, uh-huh. I remember he like locked eyes on me, and he used a fake name. And me, my sickness, my martyrdom, whatever it was, I never went back. And in my mind, I didn't go back so that guy could be honest and get the help that he needed. 
So you wanted to remain anonymous in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've always struggled with this concept about if you verbalize it, then it could be true. Yeah. If you don't verbalize it, there might still be hope that it's maybe not true, no matter what the situation is. So yeah, I didn't want to admit who I was there or admit mm -hmm. why I was there. It was more of, my name's Steve and I'm here out of curiosity. Yeah, just so you could find out and decide whether you wanted to continue to participate. How many years was that prior to you coming in in 2015? Would have been probably around 10 years. Should have been 05 around. What was there going on that made you decide to go to an AA meeting in the first place? I guess if we go further back, that wasn't even my first attempted AA. Uh -huh. In the late 90s, I had some meetings mm -hmm. that were more or less court mandated. And even at that time, the stories were interesting. Uh, I enjoyed listening to the people, but mm -hmm. it was still just in the way of me drinking. I had cold beer in the backseat of the car in the parking lot. You know, I, I didn't take it seriously at all. And then early 2000s, uh -huh. somewhere between 2000 and 2001, I went to some AA meetings, more of a social atmosphere mm. in prison. I'd like to take a look at some of that in a little bit more detail when it comes to the reasons for coming in, but a lot of times these stories have a beginning somewhere, and usually it's within the family of origin. Can you tell me what your childhood was like, where you grew up, and what family life was like for you as a kid? Small town Oklahoma. My father died of alcoholism when I was about 18 months old. So in the story that I've always been told was, you know, my mother, three boys, there was three of us. My younger brother was days old, I guess. He was an infant at the time, maybe months, months old. Mm -hmm. And my father was a type of paycheck on Friday, don't see him till Monday type of drunk. Mm -hmm. And the way it's been told to me was, you know, he didn't come home. And the police knocked on the door, you know, some morning and asked my mother, like, do you own this brown whatever type of car? Uh -huh. And she said yes, and she automatically knew what it was. And he was a couple blocks away from the house, just parked dead with a bottle of bourbon in his lap. At the time or on the death certificate, have you ever seen that? It says diabetes. Diabetes, yeah. I think it's like complications of diabetes, maybe it just says diabetes, I don't remember. Do you know if it, he, he actually had diabetes? I'm not for certain, yeah. but I've heard, you know, the sugar content and alcohol, and he was the guy that would drink and not eat. So there's probably diabetes, maybe, I don't know. So he was a pretty sick man from the disease of alcoholism. Did that become a secret around your house, or how was that handled? My mother remarried when I was four, so uh -huh. just a few years later, and this guy, my stepdad, he didn't drink, but my father was never to be mentioned. He mm. wanted everything to be conceived as that nuclear family. We were his children. There was no other person involved. Mm -hmm. So the alcoholism was not discussed. Mm. There was no booze in the house. And you know, my father just wasn't to be talked about. So you have siblings? Yes, older and a younger. Between yourselves, did you ever discuss it about your, your your dad of origin as opposed to your stepdad? I don't think so. Not a, not as children. Well, that makes sense. I mean, if you're 18 months old, and how much older is your... My older brother is about three years. Uh -huh. So, I mean, he... Might have seen some of something, that. Something. Um, some semblance of a, of a father. It sounds to me like a really tragic story of alcoholism and the ultimate demise of one who's an alcoholic. I remember specifically, we moved to Houston in 2007, and I remember, you know, I stayed inebriated enough, long enough, you know, over the all of my course of time, that mm -hmm. just numbs curiosity of certain things, especially of your past or having to deal with things. And I remember being curious one time, and I, I didn't know when my father had died. And I had to go look it up on the internet, mm -hmm. and I think the way I found out the age that he died was being able to find a picture of his headstone that was online. Hmm. And I remember seeing that date and doing the math to how old it was that he died and being happy that I outlasted him. Hmm. That wasn't like any type of a sign to me, but if you just like look at where somebody died, then you're like, whew, I made it past 32. That's 
good. That's obviously a sign of sickness. You're talking about a household then with the stepfather and your mother and your two, your, your older brother and younger... Brother, all boys. So the three of you grow up in this house where there is no booze. When was your first experience having a drink? I know that I had an uncle over one time and it was beer and um, like a barbecue. I just remember that I, I remember that taste of beer. Uh huh. And I was probably around eight, somewhere around eight. And so there was still drinking on, say, like some people on my mother's side of the family. Mm -hmm. And I know that visiting them in Alabama when I was probably around that same age, stealing uh, drinks from liquor bar when all the adults were, you know, having cocktails and, and visiting and catching up on old times. Mm -hmm. She had this one of those old entertaining bars that, you know, stand up in the corner. So I, as a kid, I could get back behind there and nobody would see me. And my aunt caught me back there pulling nips. And so she showed me how to make a drink, like a gin ricky or something. I don't remember mm -hmm. what it was. Mm -hmm. That way I could make her drinks mm. and I could have a drink versus <laughs> stealing nips out of a bottle. You, when you talk about things coming full circle, um, you know, I had a friend, we'd spend time with, visit with him, and, you know, was drinking, we were always drinking, uh -huh. and he had a daughter, and I couldn't tell you how old she was at the time, four, three, four, or five, and I just thought it was the cutest thing to teach her to go get me a beer out of the refrigerator. You know, I couldn't teach her to open it, because her fingers were too small, but looking back on that now, I was like, that wasn't cool. Yeah. That was perpetuating, I guess, what had happened with me. Yeah. So when it came to you taking a drink, when did you actually take a drink that led to another drink or future drinking? I was 11, about 11. And this was in our house. There was no drinking in our house, and my mother didn't drink, my stepfather didn't drink, but there was a stocked uh, liquor bar. And it wasn't for entertaining, because uh -huh. there was like no entertaining in my house. My stepfather was that very negative, dark cloud of a person, so I don't think there was a lot of friends in his life, so it's not like there was ever company over. But he was a repo man, mm -hmm. and it comes with its own lifestyle, and he also owned and had operated taxi cabs. I don't think that he drove them, but anyway. And in that world, there were things that fell off trucks type of thing. And so there was, yeah, we had this entirely stocked liquor bar of mm. free booze from who, who knows where and an older brother. My parents were divorced at this time, or my stepfather and my mother, mm -hmm. and so my older brother was visiting, and we grabbed this bottle of vodka and went out and just got plowed. So that was about 11 years old. And that became a thing, with him or without him. Did you get, did you get sick? Well, there's the funny part of that story. I don't know how funny it is. There was throw up, he said it was me, I feel like it was him, so <laughs> who knows? Who's, I thought I handled it like a man, yeah. <laughs> but according to him, I did not. You have to get some DNA evidence on that exactly. to prove, prove it one way or the other. So you're 11 years old, you're drinking out of a vodka bottle. What kind of feeling did you get from it? You know, I don't know that if at that time it was any type of relief, but it was maybe adulthood. It was rebellious. Uh-huh doing what you're not supposed to be doing is a big screw you to everybody. And then it was bonding with my brother. He always looked up to him, he's three years older. And like even within the divorce, like my older brother went to go live uh -huh. with my stepdad and they probably bonded more. I guess it's that dynamic of a father and boys, you wanna to migrate to the dad versus the mother, so there's always a feeling of being left out. Bill, tell me the trajectory of your drinking, let's say from age 11 or 12, just going into middle school, on into and maybe through high school. How did that look in terms of its progression in your life? Progressed steadily. It would go from, you know, when I was young, at that 11, 12, 13 age. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it wasn't a every weekend thing. Mm -hmm. I just imagine that it wasn't. Throughout high school, you know, it immediately became a every weekend thing. And I just remember young, fifth grade, sixth grade, things like that, feeling different in school, not necessarily that a part of different. I mean, I did experience that, but just like, yeah, I just got drunk over the weekend. 
It's like, because I'm a man, that's what I do. Hmm. Like, it was that false bravado, weird trying to find yourself thing. Kind of scrounging for envy of others, right? Yes. Yeah, I get that. When were your first consequences to drinking? I didn't have, like, cool parents. It was just like, oh, you can drink as long as you're at home, or, or I hope you learned a lesson. It wasn't anything like that. Uh-huh. Um, I think it was, you know, I was living with my stepdad, and I think it was just a matter of not being able to fool him. Just mm-hmm. coming home in the middle of the night drunk and getting scolded the next day. I don't remember if I got grounded, but, you know, you're, you're already young and hungover. Mm-hmm. You feel like that should be punishment enough, but it wasn't as punished more. And then I was reminded that, you know, pretty good chance I'm an alcoholic because my father was an alcoholic. Uh-huh. He even bought me a book. So even in me being a, a rebellious kid who was raging out at my, you know, stepfather or, you know, whatever those angsts were, yeah. uh, apparently the guy still cared to the extent that, you know, he was trying to, in his own way, explain to me I'm probably an alcoholic, I'm, I have a predilection of this, and he bought me a book on it. Huh. I didn't read the book. I just remember, I don't know, feeling that, that angst of a kid being picked on by his parents is what I took away from that. That would probably been like the first consequences or the first time being called out. So you were noticed, you were called out. What was your response to that? Just rebelling more. I've never been one to take advice, even if it's the best advice. Even yeah. if I look back and I say, that guy's probably right. I'm not going to do that because then that would be admitting that I was wrong and admitting that you were right. So I'm just going to keep going down the same negative path. And I, I still struggle with that today. And when you're talking about that group of drinking buddies, or that circle that I found to hang out with, uh-huh. they just gravitated towards that right of of you know it's cool to not care it's cool to not study people laugh about how terrible their grades were it's like it was that was the environment that i was in but when i was 16 my stepfather kicked me out because we we finally just came to an impasse was it over the booze the drinking well that was a, probably a contributing factor i mean even though it was like never brought up we just didn't get along anymore huh. um at the time like my older brother had just walked out of the house one day and left mm. like when he was still in high school. So then it would have been probably myself and my younger brother living with my stepdad. And I remember him telling me one time, like we did, we went for months living in the same little shotgun house. Mm-hmm. You familiar with those? Mm-hmm, yeah. How small they are? Yeah. So we lived, my stepfather and I lived for months in this shotgun house without even seeing each other, without talking to each other. Leave a note on the door jam by the kitchen with like, here's $20 for lunch. Like that was our communication mm-hmm. for months. And I remember him telling me one time, like we actually talked, he said, we're moving, because he was in a relationship with a woman that lived next door, mm-hmm. and she had a kid. And he said, we're moving to this house over here in this part of town. And I said, okay, mm-hmm. okay. Like you're telling me this, okay. And he said, well, I'm just letting you know in case you need to figure out what you're supposed to do or something. I was like, and it just like, it, it kind of made sense, but it kind of didn't make sense, right? It's like, okay, this is what I think you're saying, that I need to figure out where I'm going to live, but that's not what someone would tell their kids, so it didn't make sense to me. So it wasn't a surprise when I came home one day and all of my stuff was in trash sacks on the porch and the lock was changed. Huh. And that was just my life. Like, that wasn't a surprise. It wasn't heartbreaking. <laughs> wasn't very subtle. It wasn't subtle, and we lived on Main Street. So someone else had told me that my stuff was on the porch. That's how I found out I had to find a new place to live. So you're 16 years old, you're on your own, you've been kicked out of the house. What was next for you? I went to live at my brother's house. My older brother, who had left, he left, like he just walked out Uh before he graduated high school. And he married a woman, lived with their family, then they had their own place out in the country, and he went to work out of state. And I talked to him, he was like, yeah, you can live here. Pay rent or utilities or something, I I don't remember. And all that was was just that license to drink and party unchecked. So, you know, I still went to school, Mm -hmm. barely, stayed drunk. I had no reins, there was nobody to check on me, there was nothing to hide anymore. Throughout exchanges, that didn't work out for me. And he had my mother come remove me from the house, tell me to leave, basically, and then change the locks behind me. 
Um, and I, you know, I, I had a role in that. Yeah, And sure. so at that point I had my Firebird loaded up with my possessions. Uh-huh. I was 17, I guess. And I remember thinking, well, there's nobody, n- no place to go. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what to do. For whatever romantic idea that was in my head from some movie, I decided I was going to just go to California and mm-hmm. have the adventure. I'm not that adventurous of a person, Howard. So I went into town to at least take a shower because I didn't even get to shower before the right. locks were changed on uh-huh. me at um, a friend's house and they weren't home but I was able to get into the house because I had like a key. They were at the hospital for Uh sister-in-law giving birth. And so I called the hospital, this is pre-cell phones, and I talked to the sister-in-law because everyone had left the hospital for a break because she wasn't supposed to give birth yet. Uh And I talked to her and I told her what well, she asked me what was going on. Uh-huh. This woman that's about to give birth is asking me how my life is going. Uh-huh. And I told her. Uh-huh. And she said, well, just stay there. And you don't have to go to California and wash your clothes, take a shower, or whatever. And they'll be home and you can talk to them. And so when they came home and I told them what had happened, they said, you can stay here. So I lived with them and huh. finished out high school. So I, you asked how school was. I wouldn't have graduated high school if this family hadn't allowed me to toss a mattress in their house and live with them. Wow, what a story. So due to the kindness of others, you were able to make it, just barely make it through high school. What what came next? I went to college. I went to uh, state school. And the only reason I went was because I had zero life skills. And I thought you graduate high school, you go to college, and I needed a place to live. Hmm. So that's that's how I went to college, why I went to college. And I had gotten a DUI in that summer of graduating high school and starting freshman year of college. But this DUI, I wrecked a car and I hit like a rock embankment of like a big fence post on a farm, uh-huh. like on the side of the road. And it flipped this car, this small car, end over nose three times. And I shot out of the rolled up driver's side window. I was blacked out. So I wake up. Coming to in a driveway, face down, I have dirt and glass and rocks and blood in my mouth. And I'm realizing what's going on. I'm coming to and I'm starting to get up. And I remember this woman, she's holding my head on either side. And she says, stop, don't move. And I'm mumbling and I'm getting up. She goes, your neck might be broke. Your neck might be broke. And I stand up and she's like, you need to stay here. Mm -hmm. The ambulance is coming. And I just push her away and I start walking the direction that home is. And the ambulance shows up and they're trying to get me on the gurney, they're trying to get me to stop. And they say, look at your car, look at your car, you can't go home. And I turn around, look at my car, it was a pancake, it was Mm. unrecognizable, it was flat. If I would had a seatbelt on, I'd have been dead. This is not advocating for not wearing a seatbelt, but I don't think I would have survived that. And my head, alcoholism, concussion, drunk, blacked out, seeing that car, what worked in my head was that if I go home and go to bed, this will all be okay. Huh. And so they had to wrestle me down to strap me to the gurney. I'm not a good patient. I kicked everything and I spit and cussed and it was not pleasant. They take me to the hospital. Uh, during the course of some of this, my, my tirade at the hospital, a higher patrolman came in and had them draw blood. And so that gave me my first DUI. Mm-hmm. And that is what gave me a court-ordered outpatient treatment. Mm-hmm. And there were some meetings involved. So, so you went to outpatient. So what did that look like? I don't remember. Uh, I couldn't remember the, the months of it. It was a couple of nights a week. Um, I had beer in the back. That woman that I was sleeping with in high school, she would drive me, typically. And I had beer in the car waiting for me. Like, it's not like I would go home to drink. I would leave that outpatient meeting and start drinking immediately. And I remember that I liked it. Yeah. Like the content was good. I enjoyed it and I enjoyed learning about stuff, but it wasn't for me. Yeah. 
I was doing this because I was being picked on by the court system. I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. That was the extent of that. That was the worst that happened to you at that particular DUI, was just having to go to the outpatient and some meetings? To that point, yes, but the car wreck left me a couple of weeks in intensive care. My collarbone was poking out, ripped the side of my knee out, a ruptured spleen, broken ankle, not to mention stitches and everything else involved with that. But so after the ambulance had taken me to that hospital, uh-huh. and I was such a terrible patient, yeah. that when they were shift changing, the first doctor said to you know, hook me up for observation because there was obviously something going on. Right. And the other doctor came in and saw my behavior. And he, I mean, Hippocratic's oath, he, he was wrong, but yeah. on a personal <laughs> basis, he was right. right. Because I mean, I was spitting at people, I was cussing yeah, everybody. Yeah. And he said, no, screw that guy, send him home. And so they sent me home. I don't know how I got home, but I just laid in the floor um, on all fours because I was bleeding internally. Mm. And it was the next day somebody came by to check on me and took me to a different hospital where they did the MRI and found out I had a ruptured spleen and Mm. I went into intensive care. So it was the DUI, it was the car wreck, it was all the medical involved with that. As the, the court progressed, yeah, I believe it was, I just had to do this outpatient stuff. I had to probably pay some fines you know it wasn't hmm. terrible but then I was the only person I knew that went through that you know none of my other classmates or friends had ever gone through this so to me that wasn't even a discouragement that was just me progressing as a man because my stepfather and the way I've been raised is that life sucks yeah work is hard yeah there's no joy in anything so I guess I was had this sense that the more misery you're in or you cause, the more you're progressing in life. And alcohol will definitely aid that, won't it? Yes, exactly. When they sentence you to go to this outpatient, you go, you still hadn't connected your alcohol consumption with any of the consequences that were happening. Was it just bad luck? I was being picked on. Picked on. I was being picked, picked on. on. It was bad luck in the sense that I, everyone else that I knew drank like me, in my mind. Uh-huh yet they weren't getting pulled over on a regular basis. I also had this false sense of not just security, but that this was a normal thing because it being a small town, yeah. I couldn't tell you the number of times I'd been stopped by police right. and they would either follow me home or take me home or take my beer or tell me to drive safe. So there were no consequences to this. It wasn't until, I mean, I was 18 that that car wreck happened and it was a higher patrolman that showed up on the scene that there was ever any legal consequence. And so with me having this years of being let off scot-free. It's almost like you were enabled to continue to drink. Yes. See, you get it. And well, enabled (laughs) and not only enabled, but emboldened by the idea that I can do whatever I want and not face any real consequences from it until you do. And even then, that's got an explanation for why you got off the hook. Yeah, it was a jerk hired patrolman. So the jerk patrolman puts you in front of the court. The court sentences you to this outpatient. Was the AA part of that? The AA was part of the outpatient. I couldn't tell you what the the court decree was or whatever I had to do. There was fines. There was this outpatient. That was a court-mandated thing. Yeah, and I went to a couple of AA meetings. You had to fulfill a certain quota of meetings, I take it? Yes. Was there a probation involved? There was probation, but it was, uh, I didn't report to anybody. Like, it was just probably a year or something. I, I don't remember. So let's let's look ahead to the next part of your life, the, the part that kind of leads up to you coming into AA for earnest. What does that period look like? Between that and when I went in on my actual own volition, yeah. just a lot of drinking, a lot of sinking down the downward spiral, a lot of drawing lines in the sand and stepping over them. Were you a functional alcoholic? I mean, were you able to hold a job and and still support yourself while you were drinking during those years? I dropped out of college, two different colleges, maybe five different times. Yeah, I had a ton of student loan debt to show you that with not a single grade to prove that I was there other than the student loan debt. I could work. Like I I worked at a machine shop for a year. Mm -hmm. I feel that I was probably enabled to continue my lifestyle this way. I had a grandmother who died and left me a sum of money 
that contributed to this lifestyle. So you didn't have to work. I didn't have to work to the extent that other people had mm -hmm. to work. I think that that goes on that same coin with being in high school and cops not holding legal action against me when they catch me drinking and driving. I felt different than everybody else. So the money enabled you? The money enabled oh. me. I didn't have to take things serious. I could do whatever I wanted to. And throughout this time, I racked up several DUIs. Mm. And I went to prison. And I was released from prison. And I couldn't even do my parole. And I went back to prison. Mm. I went to prison three times over these same charges and continue to add charges to them. They're all DUI stuff. Do the sentences get worse as they go along? No. I, I think what I ended up with was two three-year sentences and a four-year sentence. Huh. But they ran together. So it was like doing four years. And I, th I did less than three years in actually being incarcerated for that. I went to an AA meeting once or twice in prison, and that was, you know, I wasn't looking for help. I, in prison, I didn't drink. I, I was okay. If it wasn't around me because I was in prison, I, I, it's not like I didn't crave the drink. So you, you were dry for three years in prison? Yeah, but I wasn't in prison for three years in a row. Cumulative, over three different times, but literally the day that I got out, I was drinking. And there was never any thought about that. It wasn't boy, I hope I don't drink. I got out to go drink. You know, looking back in hindsight, yeah. and even I remember being in high school, remember like the cable guide that scrolled up yeah. on TV? That's how you had to see it was on TV. And across the bottom would be this running ad of just different things. I remember in high school, it would say that this AA meeting met at such and such time. Huh. And I would see that and joke with friends about you know, well, I don't drink before noon, so I'm or not an alcoholic or whatever. Like, these were common threads in, in humor, gallows humor, but it was just avoiding the obvious. So I don't think that there was so much recognition as much as there was avoidance of it either. And when I got out, because of the assumptions I put on the world and the people that I knew, I didn't think that I was in prison because of drinking and driving, but because I'm the one who got caught. I'm the, I was being picked on. Yeah. I assumed that everybody behaved the way I did. And like you said, bad luck. Bad luck. So, so you're the guy who does just what everybody else is doing, but you're the guy they have it out for. Poor me. Poor you. Poor you. Your self-esteem must have been uh, not very high during that period of time, I guess. Terrible, huh? but I, I think it had been like that most of my life. Over what period of years were the three prison sentences in that period of time we're talking about now? It was probably four years. Okay, so for four years you're in and out of prison because of the DUIs. Was the DUI that led to your final prison sentence your last DUI? No. Or did you have others? I had another one. Another one. It was years later. I see. So, like I said, I went to a couple of AA meetings in prison and that was a clown show. There may have been people there for help. I don't know. I wasn't. Um, but when I had gotten out, it was probably three years after getting out, three or four years, just through whatever chain of circumstances had happened. I think why I really pursued it. And I was a daily drunk driver. And I lived with that, that feeling, that dark cloud over my shoulder that any time could be the time that I go back to prison. Mm. But I never stopped drinking and driving. It was that same thing of somebody, like you said, not drinking for a period because I couldn't, and then saying, okay, well, I'm just not gonna drink anymore because that seems to be my problem, and then realizing that they can't not drink. I knew that I could not not drink and drive. Yeah. So I had this real just dark acceptance of it, and I lived with that. Uh -huh. But I think what it was that led me to actually pursue AA for myself was all of that piling up. And this is over what number of years, would you say? I was probably... 25, 26 at the time. So we're really only talking a period, let's say, from high school until 26 years old, until you finally... Tried it, seriously. I lived with a girl, we were friends, we were roommates, and the landlord called me, or I went to go pay my rent late, or my half, or whatever, and I remember him saying that my roommate was scared of living with me. Hmm. And being a drunk and a, you know, 
wild thoughts. I had no idea what she was talking about. Why would she would be scared of me? And, and, and it was, I, I spun off. Somehow I managed to do some soul searching on there. And what it came down to was I was an irresponsible person. And right. she was afraid of living with an irresponsible person that wasn't going to pay their bills. It wasn't the fear of bodily harm or burning the house down or stealing anything. It was just that rent was going to fall behind because I was irresponsible. So you weren't pulling your weight. In other I wasn't words. pulling my weight. I never pulled my weight all of my life. That coupled with just everything piling up is why I decided to go to AA. Huh. And I stopped drinking for a period of months. While you started to go to AA? Yes. Like I said, I went for a couple of weeks until I saw that guy across the table who used a fake name because we knew each other. And so I stopped going to AA and I just had white knuckled it, which I was doing anyway. Did you immediately think of AA whenever that happened or, or were you thinking of other solutions? I thought about it because I knew it. I mean, I knew that AA was there. I knew the purpose of AA. Yeah, yeah. I'm not one of these people that's oblivious to the fact that it shows up and so I just Google search, what do you do if you drink too much? I knew. Yeah, I get that. Whether I wanted to admit it or not, I knew where I was heading in life. Deep inside in your heart of hearts, you knew what was going on. Exactly. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. So after you saw that guy and you decided that you didn't want to go back, did you consider going to other meetings? No. That's how much chance I gave it. Okay, so you were sober for how long? It was a couple of months. A couple of months. I want to say it might have been six weeks. So you gave it six weeks and then you went out? I went out. I started drinking again. And how long did you stay out that time? Uh, forever. <laughs> forever. Yeah, uh -huh. Until I was 37, until 2015. So for the next 11 years after your first personally motivated stab at AA, there's an 11 year period where you left AA in the dust. What were those 11 years like? We moved here for my wife's career. Girlfriend uh -huh. at the time, we moved here for her career. That was one of those things where life just immediately got better because I left that group of drowning friends, right? Because we all engage in the same activity and it's, you know, you hold each other down. You're the sum of your five people you hang out with the most. So just getting away from that enhanced my life. Uh -huh. But at the same time, I went to work offshore, doing offshore oil field construction. And doing that, you're out in the Gulf of Mexico for two or three weeks at a time, not drinking. It's not, it's not available. Hmm. So you're working, you're doing labor, you're eating on a regular basis, you know, as, as opposed to at home when you're drinking and you're not doing anything and you're not eating right. healthy. Uh -huh. So I did that for seven years. And I think that enabled me to prolong my downward spiral. Hmm. I continued to go down but at a slower clip yeah. because I spent half the month, for lack of a better term, in a health farm. I was offshore. So during those seven years, you never thought to yourself, well, I've been sober now for two weeks after being on the platform here. Maybe I should go a few more weeks or to the next time and see if I could string it together. Did that ever run through your mind? No, because quitting never occurred to me. Uh, uh, it wasn't, uh, uh. you know, it wasn't my problem. As soon as the helicopter would land, uh -huh. or I would get off the boat, yeah. depending on what mode of transportation we utilized, I hit the first beer joint, pulling out of the dock. Mm -hmm. And then I would drink the five or seven hours or 12 hours on the way home. Like I said, I'm a drinker and driver, but it never occurred to me to not. When you were in those meetings, and I, it doesn't sound like you went for very long to the AA to begin with, but if you go to enough meetings, even in your early days of sobriety, they're going to say something about the biggest part of getting sober is not drinking. Did that message just not make it through to you? Nothing clicked. 
Nothing clicked. Like I said, I remember going. I can tell you where it is because I still go to that meeting when I go back home. Huh. Okay, and I've told that story at that meeting, and you know how I, how I used them once upon a time. But whatever reason I went at the time, or I thought I was going to get out of it, whatever I had going on upstairs was so mm-hmm. convoluted and misconstrued that there was no message getting through. And you say things are starting to spiral downward. I'm assuming the spiraling downward wasn't happening while you were out on the platform, but when you're back here and drinking. It's all of it because I would go offshore and leave my family, my wife here, to deal with the wreckage and the mayhem that I just caused and created for two weeks in a row. And we had our own lives. Yeah. You do that long enough. You know, you talk with somebody that travels internationally for a living. You do that long enough. She has a life at home. You have a life on the road. When you come together, there's a honeymoon phase for a few days. And then you miss your lives separate because that's predictable. Yeah, I get that. And then it's, when is the time to go? Oh, it's time for me to go now. So I did that for, for seven years. By the time I quit that job, because it was going to be my marriage, it was, it, it's too much, you know, on a marriage. We lived two separate, and the next step was to separate. It never came up, but it was in my mind, and I'm sure it was in hers as well. But I looked for a job closer to the house. Uh I needed to be home because this was not sustainable anymore. And I did get a job closer to the house, and I was able to drink for two more years. So I had been 35 when I quit offshore. What did your bottom look like? And what were things like in the final days before you went to AA in earnest? So when I was 35, you know, I knew there's a problem. It's undeniable that there's a problem. Even without that dark shadow of, and this time I'm going to get pulled over, mm-hmm. you know, living with that. But like on a health-wise scale, things just hurt. Things struggled, you know, just standing up, you know, just bouncing back, not being able to eat being able to eat only certain things, you know, the digestion, just all of this health concerns, of all you do is consume alcohol, started to pile up. And I knew that I couldn't quit mm-hmm. drinking because I, I tried it a little bit and I knew that I couldn't do it. And also I'm a big fear of failure. So that's why I don't start things, is in the fear of failure. So I didn't want to declare I'm going to stop drinking just so I can start drinking again and fail, right? Like I did that for years with cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the doctor to get a physical. I wanted a doctor to tell me I had to stop drinking because my life depended on it. Mm-hmm. And he didn't. Of course, you know, they, if they asked the drinking question, I'm sure I said a couple. I'll drink a couple. Mm-hmm. And that was it. But so it was, a, you know, days or a week or whatever until I got the results back. And the doctor says, you're fine. I said, what do you mean I'm fine? He says, you're fine. I said, you checked everything? I'm like, yeah, you checked everything. I was like, you checked my liver? That's all I know about drinking is sclerosis. Mm-hmm. She says, yeah, we checked your liver. I was like, how did you check my liver? You didn't look at it. I said, well, we took blood and all these enzymes came back and you're fine. I was like, I'm fine. She says, you're fine. I said, okay. I, it gave me license to continue this behavior. And by this time, I had the job by the house. Uh-huh. I wasn't going offshore. So I was able to drink daily at this point. That's why I think I lasted for seven years Right. with these two-week breaks every mm-hmm. two weeks. But on my own, with the ability to drink at any time, it was two more years. And what that bottom looked like was, you know, all of the, the harm I caused people, the harm I caused myself, the guilt, the, the shame that I lived with, mm-hmm. that I couldn't face people. I didn't have friends because, you know, I would meet somebody or make an acquaintance or even with family. And then I would do something that would be so horrendous. Mm. At least in my mind it was that I wasn't going to face you again. Yeah. So I was like, well, Howard's not a friend anymore. I can delete yeah. that number. Like, I'm not going to call you again if you saw me behave a certain way or if I just did something that was overtly terrible. Sounds like that pattern from earlier in your life. Yes. And, you know, one of my defenses to that behavior is to embrace it and just go full-scale antisocial. Yeah. And that's what I did. In those last two years, like I had no friends. I just drank on the back porch, smoked cigarettes. I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. I went to work, and I drank. That was it. And I only went to work because that's what you were supposed to do. I drank because that's what I wanted to do. I ate because I had to. Uh-huh. You know, I, I cook. I really enjoy cooking because I enjoy eating. I like the way things taste. And I didn't even enjoy eating anymore. I ate because 
my body had to. Mm. So I got zero joy from life anymore. You know, lately I've been talking with people where they've been saying about having a purpose or not having a purpose. And none of that registered to me back then. I didn't understand mm. any of that because I didn't think there was any purpose to any of it. And I just felt so bad all the time. Yeah. And so guilty. And I got tired of it. And mm -hmm. I didn't want to feel that way anymore. So my easier, softer solution was to become an atheist. I just decided. Mm -hmm. I don't like to say things for fear that it might become true. Sure. So I had to sit on this for a long time before I went full in and said, that's it, I'm an atheist. By that meaning that it's not that I don't think there is a God, but that there is no God. And if there is no God, then all this guilt and shame that I have should just be in, internal and not real. And so it, I felt like it should have alleviated me and made me feel better. It didn't. Yeah. And as the, those couple of years went on, I just continued to feel worse. It felt like all of the, the shit piled up more and more and more on my shoulders uh -huh. that I saw no end in sight. There was no purpose. Mm. There was no joy. Mm -hmm. uh, people talk about being hopeless, and I, I don't say it to be like one-upsmanship, but I feel like I was not hopeless. Like there was literally no sense of hope. Like the word or the concept did not exist in my life. And so like on the whole, the day that led to my bottom was really mundane which is weird because I hear that quite a bit, yeah. especially given my past, DUIs, car wrecks, prison, felonies, yeah. all these things, multiple chances to choose any of those for a bottom, but I didn't. But it was just a Sunday. My wife had friends over at the house. They were doing a shower or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So I had to make myself scarce. And I was just driving around with beer and couple bottles of Jameson's and mm -hmm. a loaded handgun because that was just what I did on Sunday. I, I was aimless. Mm -hmm. I went to the mall. Like I said, there was nothing awful that happened. And I was on my way home, just pondering all of this, all of this life. And I pulled over into this church parking lot. And I realized that the best thing I'd come up with at this point was to decide I'm an atheist. And it didn't absolve me of anything. In fact, mm -hmm. things continued to get worse. And I realize that if this is all there is, and I feel that every day of my life up until that point had been worse than the day before, then I was tired of it. And I didn't see a point in moving forward mm. because there was no point. I decided also that not only was it an option, but it seemed like the only option was that I could take that handgun and shoot myself in the head. And then that would be the end of it. I wouldn't have to go down any further. I wouldn't have to feel any worse. Yeah. You know, what I've since have learned is that that's the ultimate act of selfishness. But at that time, being the martyr that I am, uh -huh. I felt that that was helping more people in my life, that it wouldn't hurt anybody. My wife was a social person. I didn't do things socially, that this would allow her the freedom to go have a life, go be with somebody that enjoys things, that she wouldn't have to worry about, am I gonna make it home? So your death would be a good it thing. It would've been a good thing. Yeah. That she wouldn't have to worry about if she's gonna be married to somebody uh -huh. in prison. That my mother and my grandmother wouldn't have to worry about, am I gonna die in a drunk driving accident or end up in prison again? I felt that like that would've been a good thing. Huh. And you're thinking all this while you're sitting in that church parking sitting lot. Sitting in a church parking lot. And I've Never contemplated suicide before. Like uh -huh. again, the way I was raised, that life is miserable and work sucks. Like this is part of it. I was raised like you, you make your bed, you lie in it. So when I would read about celebrities and people killing themselves, I always thought, you know, what a wuss. Like this is your choice. You you chose this lifestyle. You stick it out. That's what I always felt. And then when I felt that, that suicide was not an option but the option. It made sense. Mm. It made perfect sense to me. And it also scared me a little bit because I've been so against it my entire life. And now it seemed welcoming. And on top of that is a very final solution. Yeah. It's, it's the ultimate expression of self-loathing and self-hatred, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So how close did you get to actually pulling the trigger? What transpired after you had all these thoughts about how miserable you were feeling and the atheistic part and 
this being the only option left, what, what happened? So I'm looking at the handgun sitting in the front seat. There's a bottle of Jameson's next to it, and I still have beer. You know. uh-huh. I just remember thinking that, yeah, this is what I'm going to do, but this is very, very final. If I'm wrong about this, I'm wrong. I retained enough. I knew enough that AA lasted an hour. Yeah. So the plan was I can go home. I can go to bed. I don't have to talk about this. I can go to AA tomorrow. I can go to a meeting. It lasts an hour. Yeah. If I don't like what they had to say, I could go out to the car and shoot myself in the head and ruin everyone's fucking night. Yeah. And, and that literally was like, screw them if I don't like what they have to say. So that was Sunday. Monday, I went to work. I'm a good boy. I go to work. <laughs> but I'm too hungover to do anything once I get home. Yeah. So I don't even drink. I don't pursue an AA meeting. Tuesday, you know, I'm still afraid. I'm still living with this. And it's still very real. So Tuesday, I look for a meeting. And there's one right by the house. And, but it started at a weird time. It started like 8.15 or something. And, and I got there at a weird time, like a little afterwards. So I chickened out. And I didn't even stop the car. Mm-hmm. And I went back home. And you know, I don't even think that my wife and I were talking at this time. And it's not because of a fight. It's because that's where we were. It's really separate lives. You just didn't really communicate. We slept in the same bed, but we didn't really uh, communicate. We cohabitated. And then on Wednesday, I was feeling better physically. Mm. Like, I hadn't drank in two days. My body was feeling good. I had been eating. I was feeling good. I was getting that pep in my step again. Mm-hmm. You know, it was the grace of God. It occurred to me that if I don't do something about this now, then I just start back over. And I found a meeting. And at that time, I guess it's probably online. Probably I looked on my phone and found a meeting online. And I, and I went. And I, I'm sure I hem hauled in the car before mm-hmm. getting out. But I, I went in and I went to my. That's when I, I call that my first meeting. On that Wednesday night? That Wednesday night. How did the feeling that you had sitting there in that meeting for the first time differ from the other times that you had gone to AA? When I went in, those people, they were hugging, they were smiling, they were laughing. That seemed foreign to me, and it just seemed wrong. You know, it was supposed to be a bunch of, uh, you know, Bowery drunks, right? Not these people would look professional and they're clean and they're having a good time. So that put me off because I hated anybody that was happy. I was antisocial. I mean, and when I came in, because a very good friend of yeah. mine in a program, he was there for my first meeting. And he occasionally likes to remind me what I looked like when I first came in. I had this beard. I had this drawn in under this hoodie. I just tried to be scary. I didn't want people to come around me. Like that's kind of the persona that I had adopted. But I'm sitting there and I'm wondering, I'm pondering in my head, I know that you give your name and say you're an alcoholic, and I know that you don't have to either. So what am I going to do? That's what's going through my head. What am I going to do? And they say, is it anybody's first time? And I raise my hand. I'm not the one I ever wanted to draw attention to myself unless it was on my terms. And huh. here I am. I raise my hand, and I still don't know what's going to come out of my mouth. And they, like, they just kind of point at me or would you like to give us your name. And I said, my name is Billy, and I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. And I, I said, like I say, I say that's my first meeting, and I introduced that as my first yeah. meeting. The others don't count. They don't count for me. It was a tourist action. It wasn't even a cry for help. So you were acknowledging two truths about yourself. First, what your name was, and second, that you're an alcoholic. Yes. Those are two immutable truths, aren't they? Can't take it back. Can't take it back. It, it, it came out. Can't take it back. And what an impact that must have had on those people. So you went to that meeting. What did you think afterwards? Did people come up to you? Did you give up phone numbers? What, what happened well, then? This is that grace of God that I didn't understand at the time. Not all meetings do this, but most meetings do. Once they realize there's a newcomer in there, they change gears and have a newcomer meeting. This group was no different than that. They changed gears and they had a newcomer meeting. At this time, you know, they sat in a circle. Right. It's maybe 12 or 15 people. Being you know, antisocial, not wanting attention and wanting to hide from everything and everyone, now I was the center of attention. They spoke to me. Each person that shared looked at me. They spoke to me. They told me their story. And for the first time, I remember since like I was 10 years old that I didn't feel judged or that I was being judged. Like I felt like I was fit in. I felt yeah. like I was in the right place for the first time since I'm 10 years old. And I just remember being so moved by that. Like, and it wasn't like I can pinpoint something 
or a thing that was said, but I know that that hope that I thought didn't exist was there after that. And I didn't hate these people for hugging and smiling when I, like I did when I saw them come in. And they hugged me and, and I just remember like, this is a community, this is a family, this is a fellowship, this is, and this, I'm not saying that like, yep, I'm hook, line, and sinker from that very first meeting, but it's like sliding in like a pile of crap and walking out like a human being. What a powerful hour that was in your life. It was amazing. Yeah, I mean, to walk in as you did, to in, have the meeting focus on you and the love that these people have for you, the acceptance, no matter what you did, no matter who you are, they want you there, they want only the best for you, and then you get up and you leave and you're feeling like a human being again. I believed them, I, didn't, I did not judge them, I did not look at the differences between the storyteller and myself. Yeah. I did not look at the difference between the content and my content. I just saw all the similarities. And that's not my nature. That was not my nature. What I didn't know is that that was God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. Yeah, you became teachable at that point. I became teachable. I became willing. What were your first months like? Did you start going to daily meetings after that? It was exhausting. Or? I did the 90 and 90. I was, you know, I was given the, the big book. I got a sponsor. Uh -huh. He told me what to do. He told me I have to read the first 164 pages and the doctor's opinion. My sponsor, I think it was 72 at the time, he only learned how to read 11 years ago at this point, and he read it. He's like, I, I can't even read. I learned how to read 11 years ago to help his grandson learn how to read. And he says, you know, because he gave me the big book on CD too. He's like, here, you can listen to this. And he bought me the book. He goes, but you have to read yeah. 164 pages in the doctor's opinion. I can't even read, and I read it. That's what he tells me. So it imparted the importance of that on me. And I did, and I read that. So the next few months were exhausting because I was going to meetings every day. Mm -hmm. I was calling people every day. I was being called every day. I was doing the stuff that I was supposed to be doing. And I was sleeping. And even with this health and this sleeping without lying in bed full of worry or fear or wonder, when's the other shoe gonna fall off or the resentment? You know, when you lay in bed and these resentments just start spinning about how this person's tried to screw you over and you're gonna screw them over and all that, like this was my cycle, but you know, I immediately found this side effect of sleep. So I'm getting regular sleep, but I just remember exhaustion to the point that I didn't have free time. And by free time, you know, my free time used to be just drinking, being antisocial. Now I was doing something all of the time. And uh -huh. that's a drastic change of pace. So you did the 90 and 90, you got a sponsor, you worked all 12 steps. How long did it take you to get through the, the steps? It took me, I still haven't completed all of my ninth step. And that's because stuff comes up. Yeah. Stuff still comes up. I was a blackout drinker. Um, I've done a fourth step several times yeah. because of being a blackout drinker. I add stuff to my ninth step from my previous life because things continue. You know, I remember things. I'll hear something at a meeting and be like, oh, yeah, that I guy. need to add <laughs> something to my list. Yeah, yeah. But it was, it was probably two years for me to work through all of them. Uh-huh. In earnest. In earnest. And that's what you're talking about, the earnest approach to it, the truthful approach, perhaps God-guided approach is what, is what you're talking about. So in two years, you've worked through the 12 steps. What did your service work look like early on? My service work early on, typical, you know, stacking chairs. Okay, I'd stick around and do things like that. I got on a service representative committee. Oh, cool. I did that for... I don't remember the commitment as a year or two years. I would chair meetings, I would lead meetings, I would share when I'm asked. Those were the type of service commitment, service work that I would do. I was never a super fan for myself. But when they say, you know, raise your hand if you have a sponsor willing to be a sponsor, because I didn't feel adequate yeah, to be a sponsor. That. Sure. I've worked with a, a three people, three people. Um, one's a good friend. He's still sober since he's been working with me, so that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Because the other two, I don't, I don't know what happened to them. Well, one I do. He's, he's moved off. As far as I know, he's sober. We 
communicate every now and again. Sure. The other guy, the first guy that ever asked me to sponsor him, and I was, I was there to tell him no. He was caught me after a meeting, and he's got me in the face, and he's, you know what he's going to ask, and I'm ready to, to say no, and I started to come out with an excuse, and another friend that was just walked up and was standing with his face right here on the side of us, he says, this is great. You get to sponsor somebody now. I was like, thank you very much, Sean. So, yeah, I didn't want it, and I got it because I don't know what's best for me. Yeah. Inside of the first week, and I'm talking with my sponsor. I said, I don't know what to do. Yeah. Well, how am I going to fail this guy? And he's sitting there, he's telling me. He says, if this guy goes out and drinks, when this guy goes out and drinks, it's not your fault. You know, and, he, and he's telling me everything I need to hear. Oddly enough, at that exact moment, he was drinking. Like the sponsee was out drinking. It was kismet in me learning that I can't break somebody. Right. He didn't drink because of me. And it did give me that freedom that... You're not asking someone to marry you. His life is not in my hands. He can only do what he is willing to do. What were a couple of the milestones that have occurred for you within sobriety? That's easy. Literally since joining AA. So my, my uh-huh. life on the outside, salary-wise, you know, possession-wise, the, the little things that we think that matter but kind of really they don't, had always continued to go up gradually. You know, I would continue to get paid more. You know, we would have a little bit nicer car, a nice house or whatever. But on the inside, it was dying. But since joining the program, being given a set of principles to live by, because I had no principles, becoming vulnerable and learning to ask two questions, basically two statements, has improved my life drastically that I've learned directly from the program is, I don't know, and can you help me? By embracing these things, my life has improved on all fronts. Uh, The first one being my career. Um, a friend mm-hmm. of the program approached me inside my first year about coming to work with him in, in sales. And I'm like, dude, I don't do sales. Like, I don't know if you've listened to me very much, but I don't like people. I'm very antisocial. And the job <laughs> that I had at the time, like when we moved locations, I picked the office furthest away from the front door. I didn't want to see anybody. Like if my phone rang, I didn't even answer it. I didn't have yeah, a yeah. forward-facing role. I didn't have to talk to people. And that's how I wanted to remain. And he just, I remember him saying, yeah, well, I see something in you you probably don't see in yourself. And I didn't, you know, entertain working for him. Mm-hmm. But um, when oil took a tank and I got laid off and I called him, mm-hmm. I said, hey, my schedule just freed up. And so I went <laughs> to work for him. And I took a role in sales. So that's what I've been doing for the last seven years. That has opened the doors to me in so many ways and so many opportunities mm. and just being able to meet people, um, being able mm-hmm. to have these conversations with people. And one of these things, someone that I've met along this way, they encouraged me to go back to school. All that $30,000 in student debt that I had with zero grades to show mm-hmm. for it, I paid all that off in 2017. And in mm. 2018, I enrolled at college mm. and I mm. ended up getting my associate's degree. December of 21, I graduated from University of Houston with my bachelor's degree. I am second semester of my MBA right now. Um, and I mean, that's just education. Yeah. That's, that's just a little bit of career. My, yeah. my wife and I, you know, we've been blessed in our careers. We've been blessed in our relationships with our families. We've been blessed in our relationships with our friends. Last year, I received a pardon from the state of Oklahoma for all these DUIs. I could have done the hearing online. I felt it was an important enough situation that I drove up there and I put a suit on and I went to the hearing. And I went last. So everybody that went before me, there was a, they start a shot clock. I think it was like five minutes. You have five minutes. They ask you some questions. You answer them. You can plead your case, tell them why you deserve it, you know, what great you've done with your life and why you need it. And then when this thing, there's a buzzer, it goes off. You're done. And, you know, some people, they got unanimous pardon. Some people were not recommended a pardon. Then I got up there and they started asking me questions and this stuff came back to the program and they started asking me questions about the program and started asking you know, how it affected me. Some of the same questions you're asking me and what I have done to earn this. Um, When it was said and done, I spoke for 22 minutes. Oh my gosh. To this board. Uh And and I did get my recommendation. 
And walking out of there, that was a really good feeling that I got the recommendation. But what I felt was more rewarding to me was that these people were my enemies once upon a time. This was the, the prison board. And we had a 22-minute conversation where I was able to see their point of view and how they actually want to enforce change and help people and decrease recidivism. And all of that conversation that we had was based on my recovery and how it decreases recidivism. So I got to see the path that they're actually on to try to help people. Yeah, what a gift for them to be able to sit there and hear a guy talk about real rehabilitation. I can imagine what that meant. What a great gift you gave. That is such a cool story. Your story is, you know, I, I love the way it, it all transitioned. And I'm able to envision the turnaround in your life, whatever it takes, you know, the slogan, whatever it takes. Mm -hmm. I see that in you. And your story has really moved me today. Many thanks for doing this. And I look forward to many more years of a growing friendship with you, Bill. Thank you very much, Howard. And thank you for the birthday. Congratulations today. You, you bet. You earned every year of it. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Bill C., for sharing his story, and thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? And please take a minute to give it a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That will help others find it. Of course, you can listen to many more interviews in this podcast series by following it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.